Welcome to Born to be Breastfed with your host, Marie Biancuso. Our program aims to help you bust through the breastfeeding myths and ensure you and your baby enjoy the breastfeeding journey. Over the next hour, we'll help you figure out how to overcome the obstacles you might encounter and how to incorporate breastfeeding into your busy life. Now, here is your host, Marie Biancuso. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuso. I'm your, your host for Born to be Breastfed, where every week we debunk the myths about breastfeeding and clarify the facts and more. And today I have with me my guest, Dr. Tracy Castles. Dr. Castles, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Marie, for having me again. Any of you who have been following the show for a while know that Tracy Castles has been my guest. But for those of you who don't know, I will tell you that she is the founder and the primary writer for Evolutionary Parenting. Tracy earned a PhD in developmental psychology from the University of British Columbia, where she focused on evolutionary factors, children's behavior, and neurological development. Her academic works have been published in many peer-reviewed journals, including Psychological Assessment, POLS-1, Personality and Individual Differences, Midwifery, and more. Formerly employed by the Canadian Council on Learning, Tracy serves as an advisor to the Children's Health and Human Rights Partnership. She frequently writes about the science and the importance of attachment and evolutionary parenting. So once again, welcome to the show, Tracy Castles. Well, thank you again. Uh, well, I I know that our readers are or our writer. Whoa, whoa! How about our <laughs> listeners? <laughs> our listeners are in for a real treat today because we're going to be talking about fussy behaviors, and I am fairly sure that there is not one parent on the planet that has not had a fussy baby at some time or another. Of course, sometimes those fussy babies are eighteen years old. But anyway. <laughs> Don't you think? <laughs> oh, yes. Maybe even more so at 18 years old. Absolutely. Absolutely. So as we get going today, I want to start with, I, I promise, everybody, we will talk about fussy behaviors in terms of later mental health outcomes. But first, I want to start with just, Tracy, when you talk about fussy behaviors, how do you define that or how does the literature define that? But I want to start with all of us being on the same page here. Yeah. Well, and here's the thing. A lot of people first consider fussy behaviors just a baby that's crying or yeah. sometimes a baby that doesn't sleep well or can get frustrated. Many times these are really, really normal behaviors. So these are not things that parents need to be concerned about. In the literature, when we focus on fussy babies, and it's such it's an unfortunate term to use because I think it does extend to what so many other people think of, we're really looking at clusters of behaviors. So it's not just a child that doesn't sleep well and might be fussy. It's not just a child who might have tantrums or have mood swings, but really you're looking at kind of an encompassing group that would include um, a child who is really not sleeping well at all on a regular and ongoing basis. You mm -hmm. have a child who is excessively crying. Um, and we're looking at, you know, not just 
in the first three months where there can be a high period of fussy behaviors as children adapt to the environment, but ongoing excessive crying up to age one, we're really looking at Uh, feeding difficulties. So they may struggle to eat. They may get very uncomfortable at the breast or bottle and refuse food later. Um, They have constant mood swings. So it's not that they're always fussy. You may have them very, very happy, but Mm -hmm. they move from very happy to very low, very quickly. Mm. Um, And then finally, as they get older, you see many, many tantrums and all of these things go on together. So it's not one of them exclusively. It's that you're seeing them all in a, in conjunction with one another. So Tracy, am I following that it, that these are ongoing until age one, but thereafter they quit or is that something different at age one? Well, no, it, it, they probably shift which one is more important at age one. So you Uh, might move from excessive crying to more tantrums at age one, but up to age one, you've been having this excessive crying. Um, The feeding difficulties would shift. Uh, Uh Sleep would even shift. So it's these kind of things that it becomes more age appropriate, but the research itself is really focused at around the, you know, age one period. Um, And then looking at previous up to age one behaviors. So, how does this fit with mental health outcomes? Well, is this a a predictor or a relationship or what? Well, that's it. It seems to be a, what has recently come out in the research is that it seems to be a relationship. Um, Arguably predictor because you're looking at longitudinal data. Um, And what this has found is it really comes from research um, out of the Murdoch Institute in Australia. And I don't love all their research. I'll be honest. They have a lot (laughs) that's problematic. And so there's always questions about what's presented. But to be fair in this one, this was a longitudinal study. They looked at over 1,000 babies. Mm. um, And they found that those that were this extremely unsettled, extremely fussy babies at one year and, and had continued to be up to one year we're 10 times more likely to have clinical mental health problems at age 11. Wow. Um, now, notably, though, like as we said, extremely unsettled includes this, this compendium of behaviors, and it really represents a small fraction. So in this particular study, it was 3.4% of children had these qualified as extremely unsettled, and even of them, 27% met the clinical criteria for mental health problems at 11. So when you think of 27% of 3.4%, you're looking at less than a percentage of children, right? So that's a really important thing to remember is that we're not talking about masses of children who are having later mental health problems. Uh, We're looking at a small proportion of children that meet this criteria and they are the ones that are at higher risk, but even then the less than half of them less than a third of them are going to actually later have these other problems. So there is an association, but there's obviously a lot more that goes into the picture than this, than just this behavior. Now, Tracy, I'm dying to ask, but I'll bet you that they did not specify. Uh, Did they talk about whether these kids were breastfed or formula fed? No, not that I know of. So mm-hmm. technically, the research we have on this that's out, it should come out in pediatrics later on. It oh, has not great. come out in print yet. So this was okay. still a um, presentation at a conference of the data okay. that will be published. So as far as we know, no, there was no, they did not mention um, an association with breastfeeding or not. 
Okay. But it, right. I will be interested to know if they actually have looked at that and how that factors into things. Well, so many times I read these studies that are not a breastfeeding study, but their behaviors, and that's always what comes to, to my mind, is you'd think by now we would have learned that we should not put all children into the same pot, we, but we, <laughs> we kind of do, you know. I know. <laughs> and and along the same lines, Tracy, I have frequently seen in the literature um, the words colic and fussy put together. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I know I, I'm going back to 1953 with Dr. Can't think of his name, but it starts with a W, uh, who talks about the the colic and later that has been debunked and they've said, no, it's not really those three things. So the, uh, you know, but anyway, be that as it may, do you make the differentiation between colicky behavior and fussy behavior? And it sounds like you do because you're saying that fussy behavior is really this cluster. Yeah, well, and well, they're defining this extreme they, yeah. fussy behavior. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So for okay. me, I take the view that colic is, as it was said to me, and I can't take credit for this, but I love it. Colic is a five letter word for we don't know. <laughs> um, something yeah. is going on. Babies are upset, but we have no idea why. Um, it's not nothing. It is not a diagnosis in and of itself. It doesn't represent something specific. It basically is saying you have a baby who's really upset and we really have no idea why. Um, yes. So that for is who are, for those of you who are listening, we've been trying to get Dr. Brian Vardabedian, who is a pediatric gastroenterologist to come on and talk about it because he has written an entire book on colic, but he really takes the stance of it is not just one thing or the other thing. So mm-hmm. anyway, uh, I probably it, di- digress, but well, no, I think he's actually, it's actually a great point because personally, colic may be in some cases an undiagnosed food intolerance or allergy. Sure. Um, in others, it could be other gastrointestinal distress from antibiotic use. Right. It could be a lack of having the type of holding that a child needs. You know, in our culture, we're not as one-on-one touching our children as they are in some other cultures and some babies really need that and struggle without it so I think it really defines you know a broad spectrum of things that could be wrong we just don't happen to know what it is and people can go through the process of trying different things it could be a bad latch it could be inefficient milk transfer and the problem is unless we start going down one by one what these things are people don't find out the solution. And I think that's one of the dangers of using the term colic as a diagnosis is that people stop looking for what it is. Right. Right. Um, And so then the kids get medicated and that's another whole story. Exactly. uh, And and they may or may not need that. But uh, well, I want to move on to talking about (laughs) fussy behavior at night. Now, Tracy, you and I have had more than one show where we talk (laughs) about sleep. (laughs) So for those of you who are listening, and if you want to hear even just a little tiny bit of what Tracy knows about sleep. Uh, that That's literally two other shows. But <laughs> can we talk about fussy babies uh, at nighttime? And is that a concern? Really? I mean, not from the perspective of later mental health outcomes. So that okay. was one of the great things that this research was able to tell parents is that when the primary behavior was a baby that is unsettled at night, waking frequently, might nurse a lot, might even be upset, 
if the daytime, because you hear this, people talk about their nights, but then during the day, they're like, oh, no, my baby's very happy. Right. And right. engages and does this and that. That had absolutely no relationship to later mental health outcomes. So really, if you are a parent who has a child that is waking like that and struggling, that's okay. Now, is it a concern? Well, it depends. There can be reasons why babies have this nighttime behavior. And unfortunately, our culture's response has really been to push sleep training. And as we've talked about before, but the problem is that this fussy behavior can often be, it can be normal. It can also be indicative of other health or feeding problems. And when we treat it as just something to be quick fixed with sleep training, or again, colic being a term thrown around, we're actually missing the opportunity to help families delve deeper and try and figure out what it is. And, you know, I see this all the time in my practice with families when we work on parenting and sometimes it's sleep, oftentimes it's sleep. Um, These families have things that I always go through a health screen at the beginning to kind of see. And the number of times I'm referring out to nutritionists, to lactation consultants, to um, ear, nose, throat specialists, to sleep specialists in certain areas to get a sleep study done um, for apnea. These are things that are regularly coming up. And I mean, I say regularly because obviously my sample is people that are already struggling, right? So we're ignoring it still proportionally as a small group of people. But it is amazing to me how often that gets overlooked and how many of these people come to me having been told, well, I really just keep getting told to sleep train. And how angry some of them can be when they're told because they just have a fussy baby who just needs to learn to sleep they end up missing out on something that, you know, I, we end up identifying together. And then they're angry that this was not even pursued by yes. other professionals. Yes. So it can be a concern, but certainly not for later mental health outcomes. So Tracy, I want to talk about this mental health thing because I don't know a whole lot about psychology and I definitely don't know a whole lot about psychiatric nursing. Uh, I, I, I did a little bit, but not much, you know, but I know from the, the literature that I have read that adults who, for instance, postpartum depression, we know that there is some correlation between their ability to sleep or not sleep and the fact that they have postpartum depression. So mm-hmm. I guess my, my question is, is there something with the kids along the same line? It, does the sleep have to do with the uh, mental health outcomes? It's hard to say. And if it were, it would take a very strong nature approach of saying that this is really to do with how people are born, that we are born with these predispositions and there's almost nothing you can do to change it. And this just reflects that in an early age. And certainly there is evidence that in some cases we can see stuff like this. So for example, children who are later diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, predominantly looking at retrospective studies of their sleep are more likely to report disrupted sleep from birth. Right, right. Um, So, and more feeding problems from birth, which can also go hand in hand with sleep problems. So, absolutely. There is likely something there for some of them. It is not a perfect correlation, though. Not all children who are later diagnosed with an autism spectrum disorder show this sleep and feeding difficulties early on. So, we have to remember that it's not perfect. 
it may represent some of these people, but it also may go the other way. And that mm-hmm. is, I mean, we can mm-hmm. talk more about that, but it may be that some of these early behaviors may actually lead to the problems we see later because of how we treat them in our culture. Oh, yes. I'm always fascinated <laughs> by those chicken and egg kinds of things. So, uh, yeah. hey, look, at everybody, do not go away. I will be right back after this short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Was your breastfeeding experience stressful or challenging? Did you face an unusual obstacle and go on to meet your goals? If so, we'd like to hear from you, and so would other mothers. Email radio at borntobebreastfed.com to see if you can be Marie's next guest. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Do you need breastfeeding training for your hospital staff? Maybe you need to offer all 15 sessions to meet the baby-friendly requirements. Or perhaps you need just a few sessions. Check out Marie's new course, Best Practices for Breastfeeding Management. It's perfect for improving your exclusive breastfeeding rates and helping staff earn contact hours. You know Marie will focus on the clinical outcomes, not just the training process. Marie's course offers the ultimate in flexibility and convenience. It's online 24-7 so staff can study at their own pace. You can use the course for all of your staff or just your newly hired staff. And Marie offers a tracking report so you can tell who has started or finished. Best of all, staff can print out their own certificate when they finish. Don't waste another minute trying to develop your own course. Trust America's leading breastfeeding educator to provide staff training that works. Call Marie today at 703-787-9894. 703-787-9894. And ask for your bulk discount. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Born to be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuso or her guest on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show. Hey, everyone. 
I'm Marie Biancuto. I'm here today with Tracy Castles, and Tracy is talking to us about fussy behaviors in babies, and she's also bringing that right around to uh, some breastfeeding implications as well. So, Tracy, before we went to break, we were talking about what I call kind of that chicken and egg phenomenon, which comes first, what gets done about it, and sometimes it's really hard to figure out uh, mm-hmm. what's what's the cause and what's the effect. Can you talk yeah. to us a little bit more about that and, and, and the parent's response? Yes. So as we said right before break, I think that, of course, there's probably some cases where, you know, in this case, the egg, so to speak, the baby comes first. Um, the genetic component leads to later mental health problems and has an effect on these early fussy behaviors. But I also think it can go the other way. And this is something that we really need more research on. But if we think of it this way, if you are a parent in our culture who has an extremely unsettled baby, you can struggle with your interaction with your child. So I have seen many parents who have difficult children, not even hitting this excessiveness, but even those who just have a baby who they've been told has quote unquote colic. Um, Oh, yeah. And they struggle to remain calm, loving, sensitive to their child during these times. We end up getting angry. We end up pushing away. We distance ourselves. We are more likely to be told by others around us to engage in more distancing behaviors like sleep training um, or, you know, timeouts for tantrums or just ignoring a child for them. And these things can actually, I think, compound the issues that a child might experience. And we have lots of research on the importance of attachment. And these behaviors in response to the difficulties actually are the very opposite of what we want to foster when we're building attachment. And I don't think it's parents doing this out of anything cruel. I think it's a combination of they are inundated with cultural beliefs that are very difficult to shake they also are frustrated and alone and they really face difficulties here. So they struggle because we are not supportive of such families, but this really creates a cycle in which these children who need more support because they're struggling actually receive less support. Mm. And so that becomes a bit, bit of a vicious cycle, does it not? I think so. I think it, you know, they just feed off each other in a negative way. And so for some of these children, you know, there's this chance that the problem is not so much the initial fussy behavior, but the response to it and the lack of attachment that might be formed from it that we already have identified has also relationships to later mental health outcomes. As I hear you talking, I'm thinking about a woman who told me many, many times about her. She, the word she used was high needs, high needs, baby, high mm-hmm. needs, high needs. <laughs> and, uh, you know, by now, the daughter is older. She's, I don't know, maybe a teenager or so. And the daughter has had multiple, multiple uh, behavioral issues, uh, difficulties with boyfriends, ta-da-da-da-da-da. And she's been in psychological counseling. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying clearly she does have some some stuff here. So now I guess I'm starting to wonder about what is your definition then of 
mental health outcomes? Or, or maybe a better question is, what are some examples? I think, um, well, when we talk about mental health problems, predominantly what we're looking for in kids is either we look at internalizing and externalizing is really how we generalize with children. Um, We don't tend to go into the specifics of depression, anxiety, et cetera. It, I don't know why we don't, maybe it's just too scary to actually look at it or maybe we don't want to actually label children that way. Right. Sure. So when we think about these internalizing behaviors, these clinical problems, they would be the ones in which children take in their grief. They feel we see anxiety as an internalizing behavior um, as an adult depression would be internalizing externalizing okay. is acting out. We see aggression okay. we see. And so the problem we have with this research thus far is that we don't know which one was more likely how things go. We just know that these children are meeting clinical levels of this at age 11. Um, and it could be a variety of them. So there's so many different elements to mental health, but those are kind of the two big factors that we can look at with children. Um, And so something like ADHD would often fall under the externalizing scale. Right. Uh, Exactly. And, you know, depending on, depending on the type of symptoms with something like sensory processing disorder, you, you may have a mix of internalizing and externalizing behaviors. And then a child with anxiety would be far more on the internalizing scale. So that's kind of what we're talking about, I think, here. So, Tracy, it it seems to me then like I'm not suggesting that people label their, their kids, but to just be able to look at those behaviors. I think most of us can identify uh, behaviors that are internal or uh internalizing, as you said, or externalizing. So what can parents do to help those kids? Well, and I think let's be clear here. I want to first just say that when we're talking about these behaviors, we're talking about clinical levels. So, of course, we all have these to a certain degree, right? We have this range. Sure. Many people fall within this normative range. Sometimes it becomes unhealthy. And that's when we're hitting the clinical range of things. A child who is regularly aggressive and attacking other people, um, bullying, so to speak, we would probably Uh say has clinical problematic levels. Someone who has these depressive symptoms internalizing is cutting themselves, is not able to get out of bed in the morning at 11, you know, we would consider of the clinical level. Um, So we are not talking about these normative behaviors. We are going to see these behaviors in our children, in ourselves, in our partners, in everyone around us to more or less of a degree on a given day. And we don't need to worry about that. Uh, For parents who are concerned and seeing some of these behaviors, honestly, it's so hard because what you have to ask parents to do is basically shun societal ideas. (laughs) Is to say, you know, forget your culture, forget what you've been told about your kid. Um, And at this stage, it is focus on that connection. And get the help you need in that regard. So there are, you know, depending on where you are in the world, but there are psychologists and psychological programs that really work on this connection. So the Zero to Three Foundation does great work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, highlighting the need of these strong bonds to be formed during those first three years. So I would say if you're struggling at this time, especially in these early days where you're worried about tantrums and whatnot, going into, you know, 
or contacting the Zero to Three Foundation if you don't live close to any outpost is a great way to find out where you can go to get resources to help you. Uh, Looking at gentle parenting, as contrary as it is, our culture keeps pushing us to go more towards punishment and negativity. As I said, they want to distance more. You almost need to do the exact opposite. Right, These children who are struggling need more connection, need more sensitivity, need more love, warmth, and all of that. So, But it's hard because we struggle ourselves. So the final component to it, I think, for these parents is really self-care. There mm-hmm. comes down to a point where you need to also take care of yourself because if your tank is empty, you cannot take right. care of your children. Right. And it's, you know, it's that old, it's been used before as an example, but um, the whole getting your, uh, oh my goodness, what's it called? The, put the your air thing on the plane. Down. Yeah, yeah the oxygen, oxygen mask. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. um, put your oxygen mask on first, because yeah. if you put your child's on first, you're still not helping them, because if you can't help them afterwards, there's nothing. Right. But right. it also doesn't mean when we talk about self-care that you're only putting your own oxygen mask on, sure. right? And that's often the way people view self-care is that's why we have these distancing suggestions is you have to look out for yourself. Well, you do, but you don't have to throw your kid, you know, (laughs) under the bus to do it. So it's, you know, you can do both. It just takes a lot of thing, a lot of thought and a lot of support. Tracy, one of the things that I kind of wonder about, as you know, I have worked a lot of labor and delivery as a nurse, and I've seen a lot of what I would generally term a traumatic delivery Mm -hmm. or a traumatic birth. Is there any research that shows that this relates to some of these behaviors that babies have early in the game? I would think so. Uh, Do you know anything about that? I don't know that research has actually been done on that. Um, I haven't read any that links it to that behavior. I do know, though, that it does link. We can see traumatic behaviors link or traumatic deliveries link to later maternal mental health behaviors. So women who have that may be more likely to suffer postnatal depression. This, of course, also impacts their child. So we may see this other fussy behavior can come from a mother who's struggling. Oh, brother. So again, it's such a multifaceted element that you can have so many different reasons leading into this one type of extremely unsettled or extremely fussy behaviors. So that is absolutely one of the reasons that could come out. It could be people who are struggling with feeding problems who feel depressed about that at higher risk of postnatal depression. And of course, the feeding problems can also lead, as we know, for infants to fussier behavior, sleep problems, all these other things that again cycle through when they're having them. So, I mean, absolutely, I logically think that that is one of the areas that could be something to look into. I just don't know of any research that's actually looked at it. And I think this is a pretty nascent field in looking at this far ahead on Uh child mental health. But it certainly is something that... I hope does continue to be researched in more depth so that we can actually help people, even though I don't think we actually need a ton of research to tell us how to help people. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Okay. Well, let's go to that. Let's go to the, uh, what kind of help 
can others offer parents? Because you just, I think, made a real good case for the fact the parent feels kind of wrung out, out of ideas, probably overtired themselves, and yet you've said they need to not do the distancing behaviors, but they need mm-hmm. to put their oxygen masks on first. Okay, that's all well and good, but how do you, as the the other person, whether you are the family, the next door neighbor, whoever you are, uh, how do the rest of us kind of offer some help to those parents? Well, I think the very first thing we can do is, pardon the language, but shut up in terms of giving <laughs> them any kind of advice as to what we think they need to be doing at the moment. Yep. Um, as we all know, when you're overwhelmed, someone talking to you and trying to run the situation is adding fuel to the fire. Absolutely. So. A mother that is holding a baby who's getting lost in these crying behavior needs a break. So she doesn't need you telling her what she's doing wrong. She needs you to step up and take the baby for a bit. Yeah. And I think that's the very first thing is these practical assistance. So I can tell you, I mean, one of my earlier, well, earlier memories. I wasn't that young, but I was 14 when my sister was young and um, she was very fussy at times, so to speak. And I remember my mom, just I was old enough, she knew, she's like, you're going to help me out here because I can only hold a crying baby for so long. And I would end up taking, I'd get, at the time we had Walkman, so I don't know if anyone remembers those with the tapes, but um, (laughs) I would put a tape in And put my headphones on and hold and rock my sister for an hour while my mom just took a break. Yes. Yes. And that was what she needed. That was the kind of, I need to go for an hour, take a shower, go for a walk, go outside and not be holding a crying baby. And she would never put my sister down. She was not that kind of parent. It was not, she was not going to leave her. So she was in my arms and my way of coping with the crying was to put on my music. And I could almost, you'd still hear it muffled in the back there, but But I was holding her and rocking her. This is what I could do at that time. Um, And so that was, you know, that kind of practical thing, come in and do the load of laundry, bring a meal, Um, take care of things. This practical support can be so helpful. And then if you're a family who happens to have the means to offer other kind of support, a mother might need therapy. As we just discussed, sometimes you're talking about women with postnatal depression or anxiety. They need help. And if you can offer the means, but sometimes, you know, if you're on maternity leave and if you're not getting paid on a leave, even more so, people sacrifice because they want to be home for this period. And it means they can't afford the type of help that they might otherwise be able to get. So if you can offer that type of support, um, if you can offer yoga, mindfulness Mm, training, these are all things that actually have been documented to have very positive effects in our well-being. And I know there's probably people listening that think, I've got a screaming baby and a newborn. Where am I going to fit in mindfulness? Um, And there are courses that could work it into a few minutes a day. And again, this comes down to, though, the other people offering that type of support to give someone the chance to engage in that, to enter that. And then the other thing that I think so many people forget about um, is that when we think of parents, we think about parents with one child struggling with this. Mm -hmm. Now, what if it's Mm -hmm. your second child or your Mm -hmm. third? Uh We need to 
also consider that they need help with the other children. Other kids, absolutely. Because sometimes a mom can handle a really fussy baby if they also don't have to get a two-year-old and a four-year-old off to other programs and <laughs> to take and this and that and wake up in the first thing in the morning with them after not sleeping all night with a fussy baby. And so if we have people that can actually offer that support um, for the siblings who have a child that demands a lot of attention, that can be really helpful too. So practical direct support for the siblings is something that oftentimes other family or friends can take on. And, you know, when I talk about friends, it's, we forget that, you know, we have our family, our genetic family, but it's really important for us to build these communities of people that can take on these roles that we need them to take on that the extended family used to do. Yes, unquestionably. And, and Tracy, I hold that thought because we yes. need to take a break, but we'll be right back after this short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Was your breastfeeding experience stressful or challenging? Did you face an unusual obstacle and go on to meet your goals? If so, we'd like to hear from you, and so would other mothers. Email radio at borntobebreastfed.com to see if you can be Marie's next guest. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Do you need breastfeeding training for your hospital staff? Maybe you need to offer all 15 sessions to meet the baby-friendly requirements. Or perhaps you need just a few sessions. Check out Marie's new course, Best Practices for Breastfeeding Management. It's perfect for improving your exclusive breastfeeding rates and helping staff earn contact hours. You know Marie will focus on the clinical outcomes, not just the training process. Marie's course offers the ultimate in flexibility and convenience. It's online 24-7 so staff can study at their own pace. You can use the course for all of your staff or just your newly hired staff. And Marie offers a tracking report so you can tell who has started or finished. Best of all, staff can print out their own certificate when they finish. Don't waste another minute trying to develop your own course. Trust America's leading breastfeeding educator to provide staff training that works. Call Marie today at 703-787-9894. 703-787-9894. And ask for your bulk discount. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Voice America. 
You're listening to Born to be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuso or her guest on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuso. I'm here today with Tracy Castles. We're talking about... uh, fussy babies, and mental health outcomes. Tracy, you alluded earlier to the idea that very often the rest of society just doesn't think you should have a fussy baby, and they think that you should be doing something other than what you're doing, because whatever you're doing, clearly they've got some different fix for. And I wish I had a nickel for every time that I have heard about sleep training. So, uh, what say you about and, and listeners? Tracy's got a lot to say on this. <laughs> we we talked about this last year, uh, but uh, what say you about sleep training as related to this fussy baby thing? I think it's very alluring for people to think ah. that this is the way to handle um, infant fussy behavior and maternal struggles. I think it sounds nice when you say if the baby just sleeps, they'll be happier and then mom will be happier and everyone will do better. Sure. I would also say that it's still the wrong thing to do uh, in part because it doesn't really work that way. Right. And sh- infants who are fussy and struggle seem to be the ones that don't respond very well to the types of extinction methods. But also because we have evidence and suggestions from groups that work with children who later have developmental disorders like autism spectrum disorders, ADHD, SPD, um, sensory processing disorder, that this type of sleep training actually increases their anxiety and can increase the symptoms that we're concerned about here. So when you have a child, this is, yeah, if you look at um, BC, they have a great great group of people working on um, basic advice on families with autism spectrum disorders. And they are very clear that no, you should not be sleep training. The Australian uh, Infant Mental Health Foundation actively comes out against it because of what we see with this relationship. So if you have a child that's already struggling, sleep training may actually exacerbate the problem. Yeah, yes. and you know, I just want to, I can hear people sitting in their living room saying, well, no, Dr. Castles, that's not true. I did sleep training with my kid and he, blah, blah, blah. But as you warned me last time, and I tell this to everybody I talk to, even though sleep training may have worked for a short period of time, that does not mean that it is going to continue to work over the long haul. Uh, and I hope I have paraphrased you more or less yes. appropriately. Yeah. Okay. All right. So this is all interesting, but do we have any data or can you use your smart brain to speculate a little <laughs> bit? Uh, what are some underlying problems that may be the cause of this unsettled behavior? Well, um, as we talked about, and I want to be clear, is that I do think that there's obviously a variety of issues Um, that may be contributing. So therefore, picking one cause is not really possible. Uh, Absolutely, there can be health issues. So children who are later diagnosed with developmental disorders or other 
health-related conditions um, certainly do report greater fussy behavior earlier on. So this may uh-huh. be an early indication of something later. Uh-huh. Uh, this can be sensory issues. So even children that don't meet the criteria for something like sensory processing disorder, all okay. people exist on a spectrum with how we respond to sensory input. And let's face it, some of us live in environments that are very heavy on sensory input that is not necessarily ideal for an infant. Loud noises, bright lights, etc. These things can be really difficult for a child to process. And the onslaught of that day in and day out can be very difficult and actually lead to some of these behaviors in infants that when you get Mm -hmm. them away from it, they are actually better able to calm themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly Mm -hmm. early feeding issues, as we briefly touched on before, I think it is probably one of the more common reasons that lead to these fussy behaviors because it exacerbates so many different areas. They're not getting the nutrition. We know how even as adults, we get hangry. Um, They're facing that. They're not able to grow as well as they need to, which taxes their system even more. Um, You have a parent who often can tell things are wrong and feels responsible, increasing the risk for postpartum anxiety and depression. Um, and then you have the sleep problems that go along with it too, that can exacerbate everything for both people mm-hmm. is an infant mm-hmm. who needs to try and feed every hour just to maintain the status quo can struggle just as the parent themselves also struggles. So I always recommend, you know, early feeding issues is one of the very first things to look into when you're facing this kind of behavior. Um, there also may be along with the health, but food issues and Mm, uh it's a big area that's up for debate now as to you know historically speaking our guts should not allow for these kinds of things to happen to go through that we should not have food intolerances while breastfeeding um but the problem is is that we see it time and time again and it may have more to do with the lack of gastrointestinal health that us adults have that are allowing particles of elements of food that should not be passing through the blood gut barrier to pass through and thus ending up having effects for our children. So, I mean, I think there's a range of them here and we really need to be making every effort there is to try and identify what that is. It may even be early ear infections, you know, some kids have recurring and they can't tell us. Sure. So, yeah, so there's just so many different things it can be, but we really owe it to the kids to to get in with those specialists who we need right away to work through. And this also requires doctors to get on board, um, not with their quick 10 minutes in and out, but spending the time with their patients to really go through the history and figure out what might be a cause and go from there. So Tracy, I'm hearing you say a couple of things. One is... Even if these are not causes, they are perhaps contributing factors. And I'm also, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I'm also hearing you say that these children that have the, the I'm thinking about the baby who always seems to want to eat. Uh, if, if they're eating every one hour, I would be asking myself questions like, uh, does this baby have lactose overload or rather does the mother have the lactose overload? Uh, So that's a a very much a physical issue that is actually quite remediable. Thank you very much. But I think (laughs) I, you know, I think you're saying this is an indicator that this baby needs help. This mother needs help 
because this can result in something much bigger and just sweeping it under the carpet is only going to make it worse with these, as you say, uh, what was your word for it? Dis- distancing. Distancing. Or disconnecting, yes. yeah. Disconnecting, yeah. And uh, can you talk to us a little bit about uh, sensory processing disorder? And I'll tell you why I ask. Uh it seems to me that there are some babies that really do calm down when you do really simple things like run the bathroom fan or put the clothes dryer on so that they hear the, the white noise, that sort of thing. Is it possible? To, to, how does, where does this fit in? It's, well, well, first off, sensory processing disorder. Um, is a the name of what we give when children struggle to integrate various senses. So they often find, um, we see the symptoms of this really defined by a child who struggles with certain senses. So they feel things. So a child who has the light issue, they can be out in the sun and it becomes so much, they have to be covering themselves with a blanket. They cannot be out in the sun because they can't process it. Their brain is not integrating that information properly. So mm. it seems overwhelming to them. Um, yes. Many of these kids struggle with uh, tactile sensations. So they are the children that hate seams um, because they feel the seams and it feels awkward at every touch. Yes. And so they struggle with that and they cannot take it. They can't get comfortable in any of it. They find it itchy and and just awful. Uh, we can have auditory sensory integration problems where loud noises become overwhelming. Even just people talking in talking. a room yes. can feel like everyone's yelling at them. Yes. So, and you can go through all the senses, including the vestibular system um, in terms of balance and coordination. And so they often seek out certain sensory input while also trying to avoid others. Uh, and this is, and the degree, we all do this to a certain degree. Again, many of these behaviors can be quite normal. Lots sure. of us don't like the feel of wool. It's itchy. It's scratchy. That does not mean you have sensory processing disorder. <laughs> right, um, right. <laughs> right. But a child who can't sleep because there's a seam on the leg of her pants may be closer to struggling with it, right? Yeah. And so we go on the spectrum of all of this. And we can see, I think, in some young kids, and we haven't fully looked at the data as to how young we can see these behaviors as being normative versus not, but many children who have this do get comforted right away by certain calming sensory experiences. So the fan, the water running, uh, the feel of being in a shower, that tactile sensation of warm water running yes, down can be incredibly calming. Yes, it's, I see that. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so these are the kind of things that we end up, you know, suggesting if a baby has a lot of this or who struggles, you take a baby out in public and they're screaming upset yes. the whole time yes. um, that the noise may be too much or the lights or the overload of the combination of all of the senses in certain environments. So these are the types of things that we look for with sensory processing disorder. Um, and that's a very basic. When you talk to an OT, they'd probably be like, oh, my God, it's so much more that we need to look at <laughs> for the sake sure. of our discussion sure. right here. That's kind of what we're talking about. And so, yes, I think certain babies, you might see some of these uh, behaviors early, but it doesn't 
necessarily mean they're going to later grow up to have sensory processing disorder or even struggle with it. It could be where they're at developmentally there at that stage as babies, and then they are able to kind of grow out of it. So Tracy, I'm kind of thinking that breastfeeding is very sensory. It Mm -hmm. is your uh, taste and your feel. And uh, um, so would those children be more likely, uh, the kids with the sensory processing disorder, would they be more likely to want to breastfeed or to not want to breastfeed? Well, I cannot speak to sensory processing disorder, although autism spectrum disorders, many of them often cross with sensory processing disorders. So children have both. They tend to go hand in hand um, Uh for certain cases. We do know that those children with autism spectrum disorders are more likely to struggle with breastfeeding. So it seems like it actually may not calm them the way we might think, but the integration of senses may be too much. Um, Or it may be that they struggle with one element of it, we don't know what, and that is is the issue at hand. But sure, some sure. children, it doesn't mean you can't breastfeed a child with this of at course, all. I know several children with both sensory processing disorder and autism spectrum disorders, all of whom breastfed and extended yes. breastfeeding as well. So, but it helps to explain that that fussy piece at least. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Tracy, uh, we've only got a minute or so left. What are the three most important take home messages for parents of young unsettled babies? Here, we've talked about a lot today. Yes. Well, first one is that it's not all dire. As we talked about, we're talking about a very small percentage of children and still a minority of those that go on to have problems. So if you're seeing an unsettled baby, don't panic. You are not signing up for awfulness 10 years down the line. Um, The second thing is to really try to avoid this disconnect with your child. You need more connection. Um, And don't be afraid to tell people to stuff it when they're giving you (laughs) other advice and to ask for the support you need. Mm. Uh, It's very hard for us to do that, but I think you absolutely have to do that to get there. Mm. And the third thing is to please remember to also take care of yourself. It can be so hard as we talk about needing to connect with your child on one hand, but also care for yourself. They are not incompatible because if you get the support from someone taking 20 minutes a day to take a bath, with music and no one bothering you can be life-changing. Um, and going for a walk every couple days for an hour while someone else takes care of a fussy baby can bring you back with the mindset that you can then be more responsive and be more sensitive. So I think those are the three really key points to remember. And especially that last one, uh, folks, I would just say uh, not to minimize what Tracy has offered to us today, but so many of my guests have said, really, you know, remember to take care of yourself and don't be afraid to ask for help. That is a recurring theme throughout in this program. Uh, Tracy Castles, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you, Marie, once again for having me. And for those of you who have found this program interesting, useful, whatever, uh, I would ask you, please go to iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please give us a rating. It's really important for us to help to spread the word. We are now in 65 different countries that I'm aware of with literally 
thousands, tens of thousands of listeners, but we're always looking for more. And thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening. Without you, we don't have a show. And so I would just like to say thank you to Tracy Castles. Thank you to you. And thank you for giving us that rating, which is just so important for me. Join us next week for another really exciting show. And in the meanwhile, just remember, your baby was born to be breastfed. Have a great week. Thank you for tuning in this week to Born to be Breastfed. Please join Marie Biancuso next Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. This week, do its best for you and your baby.